Our Lord and our God, we come to you this morning and our hearts are full of worship and praise, O oh God, to, to think of what you have done in sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to die for our sins. Oh God, for some of us, we've heard that from the time that we've been little kids. And uh, maybe we've heard it so much, it's just become very common and doesn't really mean much. But we pray this morning, Lord, that as we open your word, that as we uh, read what you have revealed to us from your very lips, let us hear the word of God this morning. Not my words, but your words. And Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and to do such a magnificent work to change us, O oh God, to know you, to delight in you, to love you, Lord, to have a, a passion for others as well. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. This morning, as we uh, look at our passage this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, I want us to begin by just asking some questions, if we might, to consider our walk with the Lord. Now, this may not be true. Everything may not be true. But let me just ask you these things to consider if they might be. Why do we sometimes as Christians pray, but oftentimes we do so with so little fervor and affection? Why do we so many in worship sing, but rarely from the heart and with such blank expression? Sometimes we sing songs and we get to the end and think, I don't even know what I even just said. Or why are so few hearts breaking for the loss that are around them? Why do we not more of us say that the greatest thing in the world is to be saved, is to know God and to walk with Him, rather than oftentimes leaving the church doors and some for some weeks it might even be that we think very little of God. Or as John Piper put it, he said, why isn't the experience of salvation like the first morning of vacation with the sun rising over the lake and the air crisp and clear and the fish biting and the bacon sizzling and all the family healthy and happy instead of being like a gray drizzly day with a hole in the tent and everyone grumbling. Now, I don't know if that's the right way to really describe salvation, but it does paint a picture as we think about it. But why is it that lukewarm love for Jesus is so common and white-hot devotion so rare in the American church today? Now, that's a very complex question, and we're not going to be able to answer that all this morning. But I think one reason is, is that sometimes we don't really get the gospel. We don't really grasp the gospel of Jesus Christ and take it to heart. And Paul, in writing this book to the Ephesians, wants them to get it. As a matter of fact, uh, back in Acts chapter 19 is the account where Paul comes to Ephesus and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he spent three months. Now think about that. Three months. Think about what you were doing three months ago. And then think of everything that's happened in between then. For three months he stood in the synagogue and he preached the truth of Jesus Christ to the people. But then they rejected it. And they didn't listen. And so he moved to another uh, place, a, a hall, there in the city of Ephesus. And for two years, two years, he spoke to the people about Jesus Christ and, and who he was. And this is how 
Paul describes it, and, or Luke describes it in Acts. He says he, he spoke to the people so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. You see, Paul was ex, uh, profoundly expounding on who Jesus Christ is. And then Paul now in Rome, writes this letter to the church of Ephesus. Even though he spoke to them for over two years and taught them about Christ and the scriptures, he found it necessary to write to them this letter and to unpack God's plan of salvation that he had from eternity past. How God elected a people, how God justified and he sealed the people to himself. And then Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, I want you people to get it. He says, as a matter of fact, I'm praying that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You know, Paul knows that what directs our lives, directs our thinking and our actions and our feelings, is our theology. It's what we believe. It's not what we say we believe. But it's what we actually believe. And he wants them to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ to the point to where it affects their lives as such. And so Paul wants us to understand what God did in forming a group of Christians out of all humanity, namely his church. And then he goes on not only in verse 18, but in verse 19 he goes on and he talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. And, and he said it is the same power that was at work in us that was in work in Jesus Christ when God raised him from the dead. And God didn't just raise him and bring him back to life, but he seated him at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And everything in all of creation is under Christ's rule for the sake of the church. And he says, I want you guys to understand how great this power is that God has done in your life. That I want you to know what you were like before you were Christians. Before Paul came to Ephesus and before Paul preached the gospel. As you were living your life, what was your spiritual condition? And in chapter 2 he tells us you were spiritually dead. You were following the course of the world. You were following Satan, the prince of the power of the air. You were following your own passions in your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body and your mind. He said, but, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You've been saved. It's not something you deserve. It was a gift. But God, in the same way that he raised Christ physically from the dead and put him in a position of great authority, so he raised us spiritually. Those of us who were not seeking after God, he made us, he gave us new eyes, he gave us a new heart, he gave us a desire for God, and he made us new people, and he has seated us in the heavenly places. But God's plan was not just to simply save individual Christians so that each of us could talk about Jesus and me, you know, and just our relationship with one another. But God's purpose is much bigger. That when God saves people, he brings them into his church. And in doing so, he creates a people who are his. And that's what we see in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. That sense of him bringing people into the church. 
But now think about that just for a moment. You know, it sounds good to think about that God's bringing people in the church from every tongue, tribe, and nation. But just think what a diverse group of people we are on this planet. And how different we are. And how our politics are different. And we live in different economic statuses. And we have different social backgrounds. And we have different customs and, and things like that. And you look at that and you go, now wait a minute. That could create a lot of tension to have that, all that diversity in the church. And in, in some ways, that does happen. I don't know about you guys, but if you've grown up in the church, you've probably seen that tension. Have you not? Have you not seen people who just think that they're the boss and they're going to tell everybody in the church what to do? Or because, you know, they own their own business or they have so much money, you know, they're going to be the boss of what goes on in the church. And so you see that tension in those fighting sometimes that, that, that happens in the church. And, and he says here... Though he wants us to see that the one body that God is creating draws these divergent people, even Jews and Gentiles, by giving them common eternal life and by union, uniting them commonly in Christ, they become one with each other. But to really appreciate what Paul is saying here, you've got to understand the differences between Jews and Gentiles. They did not get along. I mean, think about things that are different in our culture. Okay, think about Republicans and Democrats or whatever, just two groups of people that are very different. And you can imagine whatever tension you might between those two groups. Well, there is probably nobody that thought differently than Jews and Gentiles. Jews despised Gentiles and Gentiles hated Jews. Uh, you see, Jews, uh, the Jewish nation was really formed out of Abraham's family. God came to Abraham and he made a covenant. He made a promise. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. All your descendants after you will be this nation of Israel. And as a matter of fact, to show you that you are my people, let me give you a covenant sign. And so they, he, God gave them the sign of circumcision and said, circumcise all of your boys eight days at eight days of age to show that they belong to me. And so there were God's people who were Jews, and then there was everybody else in the world who were Gentiles. Now, you know, there was distinctions between Gentiles. The Greeks were seen as more knowledgeable. They were philosophers. You know, barbarians were probably more ignoramuses and the illiterate and stuff like that. But, you know, but you have the Jews and you have the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, or excuse me, the Jews saw the Gentiles as dogs. Now, when I say dogs, I don't mean the cute little pet that you have at home. We're talking more like a pack of wolves. That's what dogs were like in biblical days. And so when they said that they were a dog, it was very much a term of putting them down. As a matter of fact, I even read this week uh, that some Jews believed, and maybe as a whole, I don't know, but that some Jews believed that Gentiles were created just to fuel the fires of hell. Now, that's not a very high view of Gentiles, but that's how they viewed them. Well, Gentiles didn't think much better of the Jews. They looked down upon them and they despised them. The, the Gentiles viewed the Jews as strange, and I guess to some degree that they were. You know, God had given them very strict laws to follow as Jews. So uh, the Jews had very strict clothing laws and dietary laws and marriage laws and worship laws and customs and stuff. And the Gentiles would look at this and go, wow, these guys are strange. 
and they really looked down upon them. Now, just to give you an idea of maybe how the Gentiles viewed the Jews, think about the world today. Think about the world in which we live and what you hear on the news media and what they say about Christians. And I'm not just talking about the church in general, because unfortunately, there are many churches that have very much compromised. But those churches that are Bible-believing churches that hold to the Word of God and say, this is true and I'm going to live my life according to God's Word. Think about how the world views those people. You know, maybe about the issue of homosexuality or their view on divorce or the view on parenting and, and what the world says about such Christians. Okay, they're, they're not very kind. And in many ways... That's how the, the Gentiles viewed the Jews. So Paul tells us, as, as we think about this situation, he said, you know, if we're going to function as the church, it is important that we remember. And so the first point I want us to see is that Paul commands us to remember that we were, what things were like when we were separated from Christ. Remember being separated from Christ. We see that in verses 11 and 12. And then uh, we'll see the next point, which is rejoicing and being brought near in Christ. So first of all, remember being separated from Christ. Uh, Paul wants us to remember what we were before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is not a suggestion. This actually is a command. Paul is saying, remember! Remember! I'm not suggesting this. I'm telling you, remember what your life was like before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is telling us that what we are merely in the flesh doesn't, in the final analysis, really matter. These circumcised Jews could call the Gentiles the uncircumcised. They could look down on them as part as apart from God and apart from his mercies and apart from his blessings and his benefits. But the Apostle Paul indicates here by the very way that he speaks that it's not what we are in the flesh that matters. Listen to what he says in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at the one time you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made by the flesh of hands. Now, Paul is saying that it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or you're uncircumcised when coming into the church, but that you have faith in Jesus Christ. And in, in one sense, he's addressing both the Jews and the Gentiles. And in the Ephesian church, there were mostly Gentiles. There were some Jews, but it would have been predominantly a Gentile uh, race, uh, church, I mean. And, uh, and so he's sort of speaking to both. He's speaking to the Jews sort of in an underhanded way, because the Jews could say, well, you know, we've received the sign of the covenant. You know, we're, we're, we're circumcised people, so we're, we're special. But Paul points out that being physically circumcised is really nothing. Note what he says in verse 11, how he describes the circumcision. He says, uh, by what is called circumcision. In other words, it's not real circumcision. It's just called circumcision. You, you, you can't really tell it there in English, but there's a lot of sarcasm in that statement that, that Paul has, because these Jews had a physical circumcision, but they have never really been circumcised. Uh, all they had was the cutting of their skin, but they've really never had their hearts circumcised or their hearts changed. 
they had never come under the scalpel of the Holy Spirit and their hearts had never really been lanced or pierced by the word of God, giving them a new heart that is spiritually alive and in fellowship with God. So these were people who were Jews only externally and not true followers of God. As, as Paul says in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circ is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So, in other words, he says, you know, the, the Judaizers want to brag because of their circumcision. But he says those who are followers of Christ, even as Jews, can only boast in Jesus Christ. You know, it's only because their hearts have been circumcised, not just because physically they've been circumcised. And I think that's very important for us in the church today even, especially for those who have been baptized Christians. You know, you know baptism is that sign that marks us off and sets us apart from the world. And it would be very possible for us to say, well, you know, I've been baptized or I've become a member of Kirk of the Plains or I'm a communion Christian. I take communion or, you know, uh, I've, I've prayed a prayer and I've asked Jesus Christ into my heart. And so therefore I'm really special. But people can do that and never have the reality of Jesus Christ in their life. It's not just the outward sign. It's what that outward sign points to, that inner reality of a change of heart. Now, as I said, Paul's speaking primarily to the Gentiles here, which that's us, by the way. I don't think anybody in here is Jewish. Maybe I'm wrong. But as far as I know, there's no Jews in here. So this really applies to us, guys. And, and Paul speaks to the Gentiles and he reminds them to remember that before Christ brought you near through the death of on the cross that you were separated from Christ, that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God saving the world. That's what we see in verse 12. And I want to look at these just very quickly this morning. Uh, first of all, he says that we were separated from the Messiah. You were at that time separate from Christ. Christ meaning Messiah. Now, he means not only that the Gentiles, that they didn't have a hope in the coming Messiah, like the Jewish people did, but he even means more than that. He means that the Gentiles, apart from faith in Jesus as their Messiah, were excluded from the benefits of the coming Messiah in what Jesus Christ did. What did he do when Christ came? When Christ came, he fulfilled the law for us because we couldn't do it. We would always break the law at least at one point, which meant that we broke all of it, as James says. But what else did Jesus do? So Jesus then atoned for our sins. He covered our sins. He made the payment for our sins because we were lawbreakers before God. And, and in doing so, he created access for us to God uh, through Jesus Christ. Well, secondly, we notice that he says that you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, you didn't have a place amongst God's people. Now, the temple, I think, was, a, was a, a really a standing testimony to that. If you remember anything about the, the temple where people, the Jews would come to worship, is there were different courts or different areas. And so you'd have the courts where the priests could go in and they would minister before the Lord. And only the priests could go in that courts. But then outside of that, then they had the courts for the men. 
for the Jewish men. And they could come and they could worship God. And then outside of that court would be the court for women and so on and so forth. And eventually you got out to where there was a court for Gentiles. Okay, but between the area of the court for the Gentiles and that of the men and the women, there was sort of like this three foot high wall, which says you don't belong in here. As a matter of fact, there's even been evidence of signs that they had posted in the temple that between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, that anyone, anyone unauthorized entering into this court has himself to blame for his ensuing death. Now, that's a pretty strong do not trespass type sign, isn't it? You know, that you will die if you go beyond this point. You know, and Gentiles don't cross this line. You don't have a place in the midst of the people of God when they gather to worship the one true and the living God. And Paul is saying that apart from Jesus Christ, that's where you were. That's where you and I were. Now, it's, it's sort of ironic because in that day and time, there would have been a lot of these Jews, or at least some of these, excuse me, some of the Gentiles who were Roman citizens. And to be a Roman citizen was a big deal. I mean, if you were a Roman citizen, that was something. It gave you privileges and honors all around the world. It's a little bit like it can be to be an American citizen. Now, in our day and time, to be an American citizen can either be a good thing or a bad thing, just depending on the situation, I guess, if you're being held hostage or whatever. But uh, I know for myself and uh, my son, we went on a missions trip, and we were actually attacked by uh, like 200 Muslims. And uh, afterwards, we went to the police station. We were with some other missionaries and stuff. Went to a police station, and they, like, laid out the red carpet for us. They were, like, very careful to, to look into this case and to make sure that it was taken care of. We got to have dinner with uh, the, uh, the governing official of that territory. We got special privileges to view the city and all of that kind of stuff. Why? Because we were Americans. That's the only reason the missionary said you were Americans and they just knew we uh, we wanted to take care of you. Well, it was a lot like that for to be a Roman citizen. And, and Paul says, but even if you're a Roman citizen, that is nothing. You are if you're not part of the commonwealth of, of Israel, you still are apart from God's people. And then thirdly, notice that he goes on to say that they were strangers to the covenant of promise. God had given his glorious promise to Abraham to be his God and for his descendants to be his children. And in order to confirm that promise, God had made a series of covenants with Abraham and with, with uh, Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. And, and he was showing through this that he was going to show mercy to his people. But the Gentiles never received that, those assurances. They had never been welcomed into these covenant promises. They had no claims on the rich and the gracious promises that God had given his people. And then Paul goes on, he says, and not only did you not have these promises, but you had no hope. That is, that you were without hope, um, unlike God's people. The Old Testament hope was the coming of the Messiah and the blessedness that, that we see in the New Testament of that hope and believing in the Messiah is that he will return one day to take us home to be with him. And that no matter what we go through here upon this earth, even if great injustices are done to us, that one day all the wrongs will be made right. One day we will spend eternity with God in glory. And these Gentiles had no hope of that. 
And finally, notice in verse 12 that he says that we were even without God. All those who are apart from Christ are without God. And that's the ultimate tragedy that we're, we're made as human beings, all of us, to be made in the image of God. We're image bearers and we're to have fellowship with God. The very purpose in which God made us was to glorify and to enjoy him. But these Gentiles are apart from God. And the Apostle Paul says, at least that was the case before they trusted in Jesus Christ. And it's important for us, brothers and sisters, that we stop and we pause and we remember who we were apart from Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what our, our upbringing is, our affluence, how much money we have, our influence, uh, what our jobs are, our vocations. It doesn't matter what our associations, who we know. It doesn't matter, you know, how the world views us. If we are apart from Christ, ultimately we have no Messiah. We have no home. We have no assurance. We have no hope. We have no relationship with God. And that means that we can have everything that this world has to offer and yet have absolutely nothing. But he tells us, secondly, that not only are we to remember what we didn't have and who we were beforehand, but he says also rejoice in being brought near in Christ. Now I'm just going to cover this very briefly because we're going to talk about this more next week. But he he says this wonderful statement of verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Uh, here he says, this is what really matters, that though you were once apart from the people of God, that though you were once apart from Christ, and though you had no assurance, you had no relationship with Jesus Christ, by trusting in Jesus Christ, by faith, by union to Christ, you have been brought near to God. Now, turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7. And Moses is here, and he's reflecting on Israel's privileges uh, as he compares them with the Gentiles. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 4, verse 7. He says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him. In other words, what Moses is saying is, is that what nation has a God that's so near to him that we can cry out to him and we know that our God hears us and he is near to us and he will never leave us and he will never forsake us and he draws near to us. We know him and he is near to us. Look over at Psalm 148, verse 14. Psalm 148, verse 14. We likewise read this. He says, he has raised up a horn for his people. Now, whenever he uses that word horn, usually it's a symbol of strength. Okay, he has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are what? Near to him. Praise the Lord. So in the Old Testament, when when it describes people who know God, it speaks of God being near to them and that they are near to God. He's, he's not afar off, no. Uh, he is near. You know, God didn't wind up the world and set it in motion and step back and just sort of let things run on its own. The, read Psalm 139 and even how it talks about how God hymns us in before and behind, that there's not a thought that we have before God knows that there's not a word that we speak that God is closer than, than our very breath. And here, 
You see the Apostle Paul saying, Gentiles, there was a time when you were far off but, uh, from God, but in his mercy he has come near to you. He has drawn you near to himself. So can you imagine that? Can you imagine being at Ephesus? And you, you, you know, it, it talks about in Acts 19 about how this city was deeply entrenched in witchcraft. I mean, as a matter of fact, they took their books and they burned them once they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And I could be wrong, but I'm thinking that the amount was like around $50,000 worth of books that they burnt to show their repentance of turning away from this witchcraft and this wicked stuff and turning to the Lord. But just to think that they were following Satan and his ways, and yet God did such work. They weren't even thinking about him. They were hostile to God. And yet God was doing a work in their hearts and their lives that they were even unaware of. And they had, he had brought them to himself. And it says that not only did God bring them near, but it says that he did that by the blood of Christ. Here again, like I said, we're going to talk more about that in the weeks ahead. But I want us to see that this came to us not because of anything in us, but our salvation come, came from outside of us. And I want to know, do we think about that often? Do you think about that? Do you meet each day thinking about what you were like before you came to faith in Jesus Christ and marveling at what God has done to draw you to himself? Now, I want us just to, to close here today just by thinking about why this is so important for, for us as a church and, and to do so, I want you to turn to several different passages. The first one I want you to turn to is Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. And the first thing, that the reason why we need to remember what we were like before we were Christians is because it guards us from boasting in being redeemed. It causes us, it guards us from boasting or bragging about being redeemed in this new life that we have in Christ. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, if you've not read this, this is a great passage where it talks, it talks about a picture of, of Israel, the nation of God, as a baby and, and how this baby was just thrown out to die. As a matter of fact, it talks about the baby being bloody, which is, you know, signifying the baby's just been born and it's been thrown out to die. And God comes by and he finds this baby and he sets his love upon this child, which is the nation of Israel. But let me read beginning with verse 6. And this is God speaking. He said, And when I passed by you, that is, by Israel, and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live! I said to you in your blood, Live! I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and I put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. 
to sort of signify that relationship. But then look down at verse 13, the last part of that, and he said, You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore uh, or harlot because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. And then skip down to verse 22. He said, and in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember. You did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. You see, had Israel remembered where they had come from, how they were not a nation and they were nothing, they were least among the nations, they would not have trusted in their own beauty and boasted. They would not have given themselves to worship false gods and to give in to the pride and self-righteousness that they felt. You see, the Jews were externally following God. They were offering the sacrifices, and yet at the same time they were intermarrying with other nations. And then they would stand there in their arrogance and look down their noses upon these other nations. And they didn't understand the hypocrisy and the pride of their own heart. So... Remembering guards us against such pride. The second thing that we see is that it makes us cherish the forgiveness that we have received even more. Uh, look at Luke chapter 7, if you would. Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 36. We've talked about this in Sunday school, but it's good to go over it again. And, and you see that it makes us love Christ more intensely. It makes us feel the wonder of his justification that he has done for us. It makes us say that the greatest thing in the world is to be saved. Do you remember what happened when Jesus went to eat with Simon, uh, the Pharisee, in Luke 7? There was a prostitute who, who, who came in who had been forgiven and her sins. And she came and she was weeping and she wet his Jesus' feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair and her head and she kissed his feet and she anointed them with oil. And what did the Pharisee, the religious leader, do? He got upset. He got upset. He's like, I cannot believe you do this. You know, you let this woman touch you. Anyway, Jesus told him this parable. He goes, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he forgave them both. Now, which of them will love him more. And Simon answered correctly, the one who owed him the most. And Jesus simply says, that's why the prostitute is moved to tears and you aren't. He who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, Jesus doesn't mean that Simon the Pharisee is not guilty of grave sins. Okay, don't, don't hear me say that. He was saying that he was a selfish, righteous Pharisee. And he oftentimes called these self-righteous Pharisees as sons of hell. And, and he wants us to, to understand that if we are aware of the gravity of our sins, if we remember how terrible our plight would be, then we would be moved to worship and to cherish God. That, that uh, we would not pray with rote mechanics if we remembered and felt the misery for the plight from which we were saved apart from all the merit of our own. If you feel 
you have, are forgiven little, you will love little. Remembering is a great spiritual benefit because it will help us to cherish our forgiveness more deeply. It will enhance our worship. It will have us desire to be with him. And then lastly, the benefit of such a thing of remembering is that it compels us to witness to others for Christ. Now, we talked about earlier about the Jews and how God had uh, set them apart. He had made them very distinct. He gave them certain laws about how they're going to dress, how they're going to, how they're going to eat, uh, how they're going, you know, uh, their marriages, what's going to regulate that. Everything in their life was regulated uh, to, to make them a very distinct and a very unusual people. And God did that for several reasons. One, he, he didn't want them to intermarry with the other nations. And they could not be God's people and live as God's people and get along with the world. It was just very different. It's like oil and water. I mean, think about Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your sins. You followed after Satan. You followed the lust of your desires and, and your body and your mind. And then you have over here a people who worship God, a people who didn't do their own will, but they did God's will. These were very different people. And so God made them very distinct that they would not just sort of, you know, participate in the, the sins of the nations. But he, he also, though, well, let me just say this. He, he did that. And what happened was is, is that God's people saw how different they were. And they interpreted that to mean I should have nothing to do with the nations. And so they began to uh, sort of have a very arrogant attitude or very much, you know, God loves me. I'm so sorry you are who you are, but God loves me, you know, as, as a Jew. Unfortunately, you're a Gentile. And there was sort of an arrogance that took place. But the reality is, is if you look at what God was doing, he wasn't trying to keep them from the world in one sense. As a matter of fact, where God took this little tiny nation of Israel and placed them is he placed them in the Middle East in the midst of all these superpowers of the world. And all the way and all the trade routes between these different nations all flowed through where? Israel. They all through went through this tiny little nation. And so as God's people were God's people, as they were living as very distinct, or as the New Testament calls Christians, as very peculiar people, then the world would be walking by them every day and going, Wow, look at them. Look at them. Look how different they are. Why are they so different? And they would hear about Yahweh, their God. And they would want to know more about who he is. And oftentimes, actually, that happened. There were times when Israel didn't believe in God, but the pagan nations did. I mean, you think about, for example, uh, Rahab. Okay, Rahab, who is a, a Gentile pagan prostitute, you know, here's that the nation of Israel is coming to her town. And what does she say? I have heard of the things of the God of Israel. And I want to be on their side. And so when the spies came, she says, hey, remember me. I want to be with your people because I know who your God is. And today, it's just so sad that the church is seeking to, to reach the world by being like the world. And you see so many churches that are accommodating. And, you know, you might look at our worship service and you think, wow, Rick, you, you guys aren't reaching the lost. You're not like, 
you know, changing all the worship service. Well, the worship service is for God's people. If people who don't know Jesus want to come in and sit in our worship service and watch God's people worship, that's fine. But as they see us worshiping him and, and adoring him and loving him, they will know that our God is real. If we want to reach the lost brothers and sisters, we need to go out that door and be with them and share Jesus with them. And we need to bring them in that they might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's why, you know, it's not that we're not a church about evangelism. We're a church about evangelism out there in our everyday lives as we're with people and we're living as holy and righteous people before them. Not holier than thou, but holy because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's why we're different. Brothers and sisters, I want us to be a people who are utterly, thoroughly, radically God-centered, purged of all the boasting in ourselves, and aflame with a white-hot love for the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. And so let us remember this week, let us remember who we were before we came to faith in Christ. Pray that God will make your heart soft and sensitive, that he will grant you to be moved by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then ponder the realities of your plight without Christ. Think about the guilt that you have. Think about the meaningless existence that you would have apart from Christ. The omniscient justice against you. Even God's eternal punishment and hell that every one of us in this room deserve apart from Jesus Christ. Lay the scriptures before you and don't skip over verses. Read and see and think, but it be for the grace of God. That's where I would be. And let that work so work in your hearts. Uh, let that, the good news of what God has done to you, compel you to live, to truly live this new life that is given you in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's take a moment and bow our heads as we meditate upon the word that was preached this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the life that you have given to us. We thank you for each and every day. God, I know that so much we talk about as people about being so busy and we have so much to do. But Lord, that's, it's really not that we're busy. It's just the things that we choose to do. But I pray, dear God, that each and every day that we might spend time to stop and to remember. So please be with us this week. We pray for your spirit to to recall to mind the wonderful grace that you have shown to us. And Lord, I pray that we would not only know it intellectually, cognitively, that we would meditate and ponder upon that, that Lord, we would feel and understand the salvation that you have given to us. Oh Lord, it's like a, a deep ocean. There are so many depths to what it is that you have done. And let us move from a surface or just a below the surface understanding to plummet into the depths. And so we pray for your spirit to continue to teach us this week through your word. And Lord, that you would stir our hearts. And God, that you would radically change our lives in, in, in so many ways, Lord, to adore you and to give thanks to you for all you have done. Praise and glory be to your name. Please hear us now, Lord, as we close this time and as we sing our praises to you. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.